Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that it is good and true and trustworthy. As you have told us, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I pray, Lord, that your word would affect us greatly, that your Holy Spirit would move here today. I pray that the believers in this room, that we would be encouraged and convicted by your word. And I pray for those of us who do not yet know you, that we would be changed and that we would be convicted and we would turn towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us in this time. Help us to know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to jump right into this. Uh, Hunter sent us up with a really good background last week, so hopefully you were here. If not, we're going to do just a little overview. So the year at the time of Daniel 1 is roughly 586 B.C., Uh, The kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is, where the temple is located, has been taken captive by the Babylonian Empire during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, This exile was not necessarily unexpected. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah had been prophesying for a really, like, for several years at this point, telling Judah that God is going to judge you if you do not turn from your sinful ways and turn to worship God again. Essentially, if you do not repent, you're going to be exiled. Not necessarily unexpected. At this time, Judah is hopelessly caught up in a multitude of sins. The primary one is idolatry, which is worshiping of other gods, but there's a whole bunch of them involved in this time. Now, the king at the time of this, as mentioned, is Jehoiakim. Uh, Jehoiakim, if you don't know, is a son of King Josiah. Josiah is notable for being the last good king in Israel, a king who led his people to worship God. Uh, so, So Josiah is notable for being the last good king of Judah, and Jehoiakim is notable for being an apple that fell very far from the tree. Uh, Jehoahaz is also a son of Josiah, and he was king before Jehoiakim. Uh, Jehoahaz was king of Judah. Uh, Jehoahaz gets overthrown in the third month of his reign, so not a whole lot of time on the throne, by the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, whose name is Necho, who puts Jehoiakim in charge. So Jehoiakim is Jehoahaz's brother. Jehoahaz gets overthrown, and Jehoiakim is put in his place. If you turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 23, uh, we'll actually see the Bible testifies to what happened in history. So 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 34 and 35 says this, And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it for Pharaoh Necho. So, imagine the best king that you've ever seen in your entire lifetime. There's never been a king quite like Josiah. His son takes the throne, you have high hopes. Three months later, his mean, evil brother takes over the throne and then increases taxes and gives it all the way to a foreign country and then increases taxes again for his own gain. Things are not going well. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 5 and 7, there's a little bit more testament to what's going on. So 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 5 and 7 say this, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains, to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. So I don't know where you guys are necessarily in this thought process in your life, 
I personally have not quite decided what I want on my tombstone just yet, but I definitely don't want it to say he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is what we get to remember about Jehoiakim. Hopefully you guys are on board with not having that on your tombstones as well. And it also says uh, the vessels Nebuchadnezzar took to Babylon with him were objects that were used in Jewish worship. This would be like if you saw all this stuff on stage and the projector and everything in this church got taken to a pagan ceremony and was used for sacrificing goats or whatever. It's pretty offensive for the Jewish people to see their most precious valuables taken to a different country and used for false worship. If we look a little bit further down in chapter 36 of Second Chronicles, the city of Jerusalem, God's city itself, falls. Second Chronicles chapter 36, I mean verses 15 through 21, it says, "The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. His messengers were the prophets in the Old Testament, sent to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So this is where we are in Daniel chapter 1. Jerusalem, the city of God, has fallen into ruin. The king of Judah, of God's people, has enforced taxes imposed by a different king of a different nation, and he openly leads the worship of false gods. Much of the population of Judah has been taken into captivity with the northern kingdom of Israel having previously been taken captive by the Assyrians. The temple of God, the one that Solomon built, the one that's beautiful and glorious and splendiferous and all these great things, has been sacked, looted, and will soon be burned. The sanctuary which represented the presence of God dwelling with his covenant people is destroyed. And for the remaining faithful Jews, I would have to imagine this is a pretty trying time. Everything they've been taught to know as good and true is crumbling before their eyes. The last good king, Josiah, was killed in battle, and only wicked men have truly reigned since him. And it seems like the very promises of God are quite literally going up in flames before their eyes. And in their hearts, I would have to assume they are asking, where is God? Now here we are, some 2,600 years later, and you and I aren't necessarily under the threat of being carried off by a pagan empire and that practices human sacrifices, and I thank God for that. But I'm sure those of us who are faithful still struggle with this same question, do we not? Where is God today? Where is God in my situation? Where is God in all of this? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Is God going to keep his promises? Is God true? 
Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are more known often by their Babylonian names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, likely dealt with similar question and by God's grace. And their actions fortunately give us some insight in how to respond when it seems that God has essentially left the building. Now these four youths, who are all likely at the youngest 15 and at the oldest 18, demonstrate that faithfulness isn't dependent on what we see, but rather dependent on what we know about God. So when God feels distant, our continued faithfulness works for our good and for his glory. Let me say that again. When God feels distant, our continued faithfulness works for our good and for his glory. Now I'd venture to say, even among the most mature believers in this room, we go through seasons of life where what's happening doesn't make any sense, right? You've lost a loved one, you can't find work, someone close to you isn't following Christ and is lost and is pursuing that lostness. In the midst of these swirling and painful circumstances, we ask in our heart or out loud, God, why? My wife and I did not have a highly spiritual period of engagement leading up to marriage. There was a lot of struggle in our relationship. Both of our spiritual lives had stagnated. Our financial situation for the wedding and post-wedding were up in the air. We were facing some resistance from friends and family about even being married. So late 2012 into early 2013 was the most isolated from God I've ever felt in my entire life. For me, it was a restless, painful time where uh, trusting God was very difficult to come by. Uh, It felt like I was in a very dark pit that had no way to get out, and my prayers got stuck at the ceiling. Um, I'm sure some of you have been there before, um, but I don't pray that on any of you. But thankfully, the Bible has plenty to say about when we feel like God has lost control, even though he has not. Daniel chapter 1, through the faithful examples of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, give us three truths that, if we remember them, will help us persevering in faithfulness. Truth number one, God is sovereign. Look with me again at verse two of Daniel chapter one. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. There's an episode of the TV show Community where all the characters are sitting around hanging out and they decide to order a pizza. So the pizza delivery guy comes and they have a six-sided die and they say, all right, we're going to roll this die and everyone gets a number and whoever's side the die lands on, that's going to be the person to go get the pizza. And so the rest of the episode is just them going through what would happen if each person had gone to get the pizza and the slight changes that would happen each time. And for five out of the six characters, the camera just stays in the room. You kind of see what events unfold. Uh, For one character, Troy, is the only time the character actually follows Troy down to the front door. He pays for the pizza without incident, and he comes back up. And by the time he comes back up, it's just a complete mess in their apartment. Uh, People are, like, mortally wounded, falling over, like, furniture is broken. The apartment's on fire somehow. This happens in about 45 seconds. Um, And at the end of the episode, they are talking about the potential outcomes. And they say of Troy's timeline that this is the darkest timeline. It's pretty dark. In Judah, this is the darkest timeline. Uh, Israel has been appointed by God as his covenant people. He chose them. He brought them out of Egypt. They alone had received the moral law of the universe from God. God himself had dwelled in their midst. He gave them a land to dwell in and instructed them how to worship him in this wonderfully ornate temple where he could dwell with them and they would worship him. And all of that has been lost. I think it's super vitally important 
that we put ourselves in the shoes of those who are in Israel at this time because I think it's really easy for us to look at the book of Daniel and look at the, just the situation on the page and just say, well, yeah, of course this happened. The prophet said it was going to happen, but it's not too bad. I mean, we're going to get the book of Daniel from it. That's pretty important. They're going to be allowed back into the land eventually. That's going to be great. And we'll score a couple of great VeggieTales songs from it. It's all going to be wonderful stuff. I think it's important to consider how painful and difficult it must have been for those who had remained faithful to God to see this happen. Everything down to the jewels and the gifts that people had given to the temple had been taken and sacrificed and offered to false gods. And haven't we seen similar circumstances to that in your own life when you say, why God is my mom sick? Why is my best friend not worshiping you? Why am I unemployed and there's no money left? Why, God, why is all this happening to me? <clears throat> it's very easy to question God in moments when it seems like the world has completely spun out of control, when it feels like evil has won and everything you've done has been in vain. However, however I'd encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 55 and look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 say this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm going to say something, and it might hurt some feelings, but I'm not sorry already, and I'm going to say it because I love you and I think you need to hear it. You would make a terrible God. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just the truth of it, right? I mean, I'm not saying you're a totally inept person, but you are, in fact, a person. Genesis 2.7 says that God breathed life into the nostrils of man. The man became a living creature. Creature is our key word there because we as humans are creatures. We are not the creator. We are made. We are not the maker. We are designs, not the designer. We are no one's true master. This universe has not been created by our wisdom. What is right and wrong in this world is not a reflection of our own moral nature. We don't fully understand how to be both gracious and just. The lightning does not ask us where it's going to strike. We don't know how to give out of generosity. And certainly nothing in this universe is designed to worship us. Church, we make terrible little gods, and that's a good, good thing. To me, what's fascinatingly unique about this passage of Scripture as well is that the author in Daniel 1, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us just a little peek into what's going on in God's world. Now, there are a handful of passages like this where we as readers are offered a little peek of insight into what God's thinking. And another example of this is in the book of Job. If you're not familiar with the book of Job, it's a story about a man who loves God, has everything he wants, and then in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit once again gives us insight in what's about to happen to this man behind the scenes. So if you want to, turn to Job chapter 1, follow along, verses 6 through 12. Job chapter 1 says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, where, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. For those of you, again, not familiar with the story, what ends up happening is Job suffers greatly, and the vast majority of the rest of the book is a conversation between Job and his friends asking, why is this happening, and them trying to figure it out. I think it's wonderfully important to know that there are things going on behind the scenes in God's mind that we'll never see. Here's some of the things that, the thing that Job learns and that we also see true in, in Daniel, we will endure incredible pain and sorrow and we should expect it. In John 16, 33, Jesus Christ himself says that the world that we live in, we will experience tribulation. Now, the Greek word here is thalipses, meaning pressure, but in the Bible, this word thalipses is commonly used to mean oppression, affliction, distress, and pain. Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, looks you in the eye and says, in this world, you will experience pain. Let's all rejoice that Jesus doesn't stop talking there. How does John 16.33 end? I'm sure most of us know it. Jesus says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Overcome is the Greek word nikao, which denotes a conquering, a complete victory of the foes. Church, Christ has already won. In your circumstance, in your situation where you're in pain, where it hurts, where you don't know how you're going to take one step forward, Jesus has already won. Can we not rest in confidence that the Lord has already secured our victory? And this is what we see going on in Daniel 1 as well. There's pain, but we also see hope because God, in fact, is sovereign. The Bible says Jehoiakim and some of the artifacts of the temple were given to King Nebuchadnezzar by God in verse 2. God was in control of this situation the whole time. And that's what makes it so remarkable that even when things are falling apart for God's people, God never, not even for a second, was not in control. God is sovereign. He has laid the foundations of the earth. He raised the mountains and formed the oceans. There is nothing in all of existence which God cannot look at and say, that's mine. These youths, again, max of 18 years old, who were likely trained by the good King Josiah and were genuine in their faith to God, are likely wondering if all that they had learned was for nothing and it was or if it was even true. They had some scriptures, not all of them, but they had some scriptures up to that point. They were wondering, are these things even true? But by God's sovereignty, his control, we know that the scriptures are true. Everything in the scriptures is true. Every single word of the scriptures is true. And that never means that it's easy. We don't know what God is doing, even though so often we want to. We know that God is always in control, and we know that God is good, kind, and loving. Even when it doesn't make sense, we know that God is showing us love and he is working for our good and ultimately for his glory. God is sovereign. Truth number two, God expects our obedience. Look with me at verse eight of Daniel one. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. This to me is an incredible moment. Daniel, who again is a max of 18 years old, does not bend on his convictions in spite of him defying the most powerful man in the entire world at that time, a man who would not have given a second thought to having him executed for not eating food. As some of you know, my wife and I have a two-year-old, 
uh, which means obedience is sometimes harder to come by. <clears throat> but as parents, why do we desire obedience? Hopefully, we don't desire obedience as a power trip, but because we want our children to grow and to thrive. There are times where kids are just simply not as well experienced in as many areas of life as their parents, and so we offer instruction and require obedience in order that they can grow. I don't tell my daughter not to lick the electrical socket because I don't want her to explore and learn. I tell her because I care for her safety. And I want her to trust me that I want her to grow in wisdom and maturity. God over and over in the Bible longs for our obedience. You look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Church, God wants your heart. When trials come and it feels like God isn't there, your actions will betray where your heart lies. When the diagnosis doesn't look good, when you get another rejection letter, when it feels like you can't take one more step, what do you do? Your actions show where your heart is. Your actions show, do you worship God or are you trusting in something else? Daniel for us demonstrates the proper response. Daniel knew one of the chief reasons for the exile of Judah was idolatry and that the meat and the wine being given to them as prisoners had been sacrificed to idols. And Daniel in verse 9 humbly asks if he could just not eat the food. The eunuch in charge of Daniel and the other prisoners says, that's not an option because if these kids start looking sickly on my watch, I'm toast. So Daniel, knowing that God desires obedience and still wanting to be humble and a loving servant, decides to push all the proverbial chips into God's corner. He says, all right, how about this? How about if we eat nothing but vegetables for 10 days? At the end of that time, come check on us. If we're looking good, if we're looking pretty normal, healthy, let us continue our diet. If not, deal with us however you want. I bought a gym membership at the end of May. That's not the joke. Don't laugh yet. And I've been going moderately consistently. And let me assure you, it is very difficult to change your own physical appearance, especially in 10 days' time. Now, granted, Daniel doesn't have the same access to Chick-fil-A that I have, but I doubt he could do much of anything in about 10 days, especially as a prisoner eating vegetables. Um, but what Daniel does by making this proposition is say, it's all on God's plate now. I'm trusting in him completely. God needs to change the way I look. I'm going to make this wager, not a wager necessarily, but I'm going to make this proposition. And if God doesn't come through, then I'm toast. That's it. This is obviously from a teenager, again, who was just kidnapped from his homeland, saw his country burn to the ground, and is now in captivity. So what happens? If you look at verse 15, it says, At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So what happened? God came through. Daniel said, I'm trusting on God. You know, like the trust falls where you just fall backwards? Daniel does a straight trust fall into God's arms and God catches him. God requires obedience, yes, but he also honors obedience. Leviticus 26 is a really fascinatingly detailed chapter on all the blessings and promises that God makes to the people of Israel if they walk in obedience to the law that God has given them. So how do we walk in obedience? Read the Bible, do what God says. 
If you don't know the Bible, you can't know what God asks of you. And if you don't know what God asks of you, you can't remain faithful to him. And if you aren't faithful to God, that feeling of distance between you and God is not going to close. God requires obedience, not because he's a dictator, but because he wants you. Remain obedient to God, even when God feels far off, and you will be blessed. Truth number three. God provides wisdom. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. A couple verses ahead in verse 20, it also says, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is simply the appropriate application of knowledge. And we can all admit it's very easy for anyone these days to get knowledge, right? With the internet being the primary source of information, anyone in the world with internet access has immediate access to seemingly unlimited amounts of knowledge and cat pictures, but mostly knowledge. Um, the internet's a funny thing. Um, but what use of this is this knowledge if we do not have understanding? Reading articles about chaos theory is really minimally beneficial to me because I have absolutely no understanding of it. Being given a load of information and not knowing what to do with it benefits you in absolutely no way. We need understanding and we need wisdom. The proper instruction and knowledge, the proper use of any instruction and knowledge that we might ever receive can only be realized when it is primarily oriented through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. God gives wisdoms, wisdom to these four teens so that even in their pagan education, they can prove to be incredible tools when wielded through the wisdom of God. Their work reflects the nature of God, and King Nebuchadnezzar takes notice. Those of us who are here who work, do we work with godly wisdom so that people will see God through our actions? Those of us here who are parents, especially those of us who stay home with our children, do we instruct our children in such a way that we seek to show them Christ through our lives? Students, do you work hard so that God is shown off through your work? Not necessarily that someone's going to look at you and say, there's something different about you, but God is clearly seen through the way you do your work. This is the wisdom that God gives. Now, we probably won't be in a situation in our lives where we're asked to give the most where we're asked to give advice to the most important person in the world, but we do have the Bible. We have the very breath of God written on a page, and the greatest wisdom this world has ever known has been put, in, put onto paper and printed in a book and given into our hands. or on a phone now. God has graciously given wisdom to these four youths, and he will graciously give wisdom to those who genuinely seek it. Our job through this wisdom is to influence this world to know Christ. All wisdom that is good and real and true comes from God. Therefore, a man or woman who worships God and seeks God's wisdom in all endeavors is supremely valuable in this world. Daniel demonstrated this. The pagan king saw his value because of his wisdom, and Daniel was richly blessed even when it seemed like God had abandoned his people and was completely far off. Daniel sought the wisdom of God, and we can and ought to as well. Church, we need to pursue God and pursue his wisdom. 
we will be blessed by it, and we will change the world around us. If you are here and you do not follow Jesus, this is not going to make any sense to you. The fact that God is in control of your life should concern you. God's requirement of obedience should highlight your own refusal, whether active or passive, to follow God. And his wisdom is going to seem foolish to you. But God, who is love, who is good, who is kind, and who is the only one mighty to save you from yourself, your struggles, your hurt, your pain, and your sin, he wants you. The only way to know God, to experience life to the full, is to not be separated from the goodness of God forever, ever, but rather to enjoy God eternally is to trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who was sent by God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, died a death he didn't deserve, paying for our sins on the cross. He was buried. He was definitely dead. For three days he remained in that tomb, and on the third day he rose from the grave to demonstrate victory over sin and victory over death. And on that third day, and after 40 days, he appeared, after appearing to over 500 people, he, he rose and ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes on your behalf. This is the gospel that you need to trust in. Wisdom begins with knowing God, and knowing God begins with confessing your sin and trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a common phrase to say that God won't give you more than you can handle, and it's loosely based off of 1 Corinthians 10.13, but I think it's important to understand that context. Understanding that context, uh, God won't give you more than you can handle, in my mind, is not exactly true. Uh, I mean, just look at Daniel 1, right? I mean, how many of us as 15 to 18-year-olds would love to see our towns, you know, ransacked, burnt, taken into captivity, and taught a different religion, and everything we'd ever known been thrown away? In my mind, that's more than the average 15-year-old can handle. Maybe you guys were better 15-year-olds than I was. I would not have been able to handle that at 15. Um, and yet it says in verse 2, the Lord gave. God gives us vastly more than we can handle in order that we may throw ourselves upon the rock of our salvation and desperately cling to him when we're drowning. And that is why in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Saints, there will be seasons, however long they may be, that God doesn't feel close and that the world will feel like it's spinning out of control. Remember that God is sovereign over your life and sovereign over everything. Remember that God requires your obedience and he'll bless your obedience. Remember that God will provide wisdom. God will see you through to the end, even when he feels distant. Remember he is never gone and he will never let you fall from his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices, but you have genuinely loved us. You have given us a way to know you and to follow your truth. I pray, Lord, that we remember that you are sovereign. I pray, Lord, that we remember your feelings toward obedience. I pray that we remember that you give us wisdom even when wisdom seems to be seems hard to be had. Lord, would you give us these gifts? Help us to know you and love you, to serve you all the days of our lives. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Lord, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.